It's in Athens, you know, the intellectual hub. But it'd been really helpful for me to do this sermon like the first week of the school year. Instead, we'll do it at the end. And uh, trust that God uses it anyhow. Of course, He will. But uh, this is one of those Q and A nights, which means there's a number. There might be a number up there somewhere. Yes. And as uh, we work through the text, the text tonight, uh, if you have questions about the text or something I say or something I didn't say that you wanted me to say, text that number, and Kelly and I will endeavor as best we can to uh, to address it at the end. So uh, I'm going to pick up in chapter 17, verse uh, 20, no, verse 16. Yes, Acts 17, 16. This finds Paul in Athens. Now, while Paul was awaiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Another said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these mean. And now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though we needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And yet he's actually not very far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this he's given assurance by all, to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And others said, we will hear you again about this. But Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, and among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me. Our great Father, we ask, uh, after a semester of your great faithfulness to us, that you would show us great things in your word. Show us Jesus and our need for, for him. And uh, be kind, Lord, to draw near to us. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So uh, our text today finds us in Athens. And, uh, you know, maybe you don't know much about Athens because, like, I don't know, you're an engineer or something. Um, you, you would know this is sort of the uh, cultural, intellectual epicenter of the ancient world. And uh, we don't really have anything like this in America. We're too, we're too babyish. We're too young. But the closest thing would, might be like Harvard or Yale, Boston, a mix of the city and the academy and its long prestigious history. And, of course, when I think Boston and Harvard, I immediately think 
Goodwill Hunting. So if you've seen Goodwill Hunting, great movie. If you haven't, you should. Sometime during exam week would be the perfect timing. Um, there's this scene at the beginning of the movie where they're in the bar. Uh, the movie's about two working class guys, okay? And uh, Chucky, played by Batman, is trying to impress <laughs> some girls. And uh, he's acting like he's a Harvard student. He's clearly not. Uh, and as he's doing so, this ponytailed, arrogant grad student, if you want to make him really arrogant, you give him a ponytail, uh, grad student begins to pick him apart piece by piece. And he's exposing Chucky as an imposter. I mean, it's clear to everyone that he's an imposter. But he's delighting in it. And as he's doing so, he's showing off how much he knows. And for some of you, that would be your personal nightmare. Like you'd rather get hit by a bus on 5th than get exposed as an imposter. I've been here long enough to know that imposter syndrome is a real thing. That you could be a straight-A student and still be concerned that everyone's going to find out that you really don't belong. And I'm not even talking about the fact that you might be a Christian... And if your peers knew knew that you were a Christian, they might think you were bigoted and backwards. You add that on top as well, and you you just may live in fear that you're going to be discovered. Uh, It's fashionable, it's been fashionable for a long time, to question whether or not uh, a Christian or even the faith itself can survive the scrutiny of the academy of a place like this. And uh, I get this question from non-students all the time. What's it like down there? Are they against you? Are they tearing us apart? Like, no, they don't really care that much, actually. Um, but all the stats and all the stories, and I've been here a long time, uh, indicate yeah, this is hard. This is a hard environment uh, for anyone of faith and for the faith in general. But my simple answer would be uh, any person of faith that stays engaged with the scriptures, engaged with Jesus, will not only survive, he will thrive. She will grow while they're here. But what's interesting about this text is Paul's not concerned about that. He doesn't seem concerned whether or not his faith or the Christian faith is going to survive the intellectual scrutiny of Athens. Uh, He doesn't seem concerned at all that they think, they might think he's an intellectual imposter. He has a different concern. He's concerned that despite all their history and all their wisdom and all their religiosity that they are still willfully ignorant of the God of the Bible and that they've opted instead for a bunch of God substitutes. And I would say that's the real concern for you too. I'm not concerned that any of you would have your faith, if you have a faith, objectively debunked by life in college. I'm not concerned about that. A far greater concern, though, for any college student would be that you would fall to the seduction of a host of different God substitutes, what Paul calls idols, that are part of college life. And uh, just to make it clear, I'm not bashing college, okay? So three and a half years in college, nine and a half years in grad school, 11 years here. I like the academy, okay? It's just that every place has its idols every place has its idols and this place has its own as well so what we're going to see in our text is that god doesn't want us to flee this place or fear this place uh, but he wants us to engage the academy because he engages it and he does so that people would seek him and find him so we're going to talk tonight about uh, what it means to be bothered 
and uh, what the barriers are and how to build bridges. This is what Paul encounters in Athens. And first, he is bothered in verse 16. Uh, I don't think he's triggered. It, it, it seems immediate. Uh, he's waiting for them at Athens, and immediately he's provoked. But, but I think actually what's going on here is not just an immediate, uh, overwhelming, um, powerful, uncontrollable urge, and then he flies off the handle. Instead, as he walks around the town, and he sees, and he sees, and he sees idol after idol after idol. He has a deep, growing irritation. Uh, he's deeply bothered. And it's possible when you hear that, that you would have three reactions, possible reactions. There might be more, but at least three. One, apathy, because you don't care. So be it. I don't have time to make you care. Uh, but two, uh, you might be indignant in a couple different ways. You might share Paul's indignation, or you might be indignant that he's indignant. And this is how that goes, because lots of people would be indignant that he's indignant. Paul, you're being a religious bigot. Why must you continue to think that Christianity is the only way and look down these other people in their religion? How could you be so conceited as to think they should believe what you believe? And uh, if that's what you think and that's how you feel, I'd love to sit down and chat with you about it. But uh, let me give some partial, not complete, but partial replies. Uh, One, if God is a person, as he's revealed himself in Scripture, he's revealed himself to be a person with characteristics, then it's possible, and you're being indignant for the sake of others, that you're simply more willing to offend God than to offend people. That you're more willing to offend God than you are others. Um, And secondly, it's possible that you've bought into a somewhat popular notion about the nature of the world's religions. This is a pretty common metaphor. You may have heard it. That uh, you take all the religions of the world, and uh, it's like dumping them into a dark room with an elephant. Lights are off. And everyone uh, is grabbing a different aspect of the elephant. And, And one person's like, the true God is strong like a tree. He's got the leg. Uh, the true God is, is strong yet flexible and moving. He's got the trunk. The true God is thin and wispy and never stops moving. He's got the tail. And you, if this is what you think, uh, is the objective observer outside the room would say, they're all right. They all have a piece of reality. They're all endeavoring to understand what God is really like. And so they're all right. No one's wrong. Now, the problem with that metaphor is, Where are you? If everyone in the world is in a dark room trying to figure out what God is like, what privileged position do you have outside of reality where you can objectively see what everyone else is like? There is no such place. It doesn't exist. It's actually pretty arrogant of you to think that you have an objective view of the world and no one else does. Does that make sense? So anyway, that's fairly common view, but... I don't think it actually makes sense of the world very well. What Paul is here is, you know, if you read this text, Paul's not angry. He's not reactionary. He's not bashing anyone. But he is indignant for God's glory. The word here is provoked. It has an Old Testament root. He's jealous for God. This is the exact way that God describes himself in the Old Testament when his people cheat on him. There's all kinds of texts I could point you to. I don't have time. But the whole book of Hosea might be a good start. Um, I'm your husband. You're my bride. You keep sleeping with other people. That's what the book of Hosea is about. 
He's talking about his relationship with his people. And uh, when is it right to be jealous? Well, it's right to be jealous when your wife's cheating on you. Like, we belong together. And you don't have the right to just do whatever you want. Like, I have the right to be indignant. I'll give you another example. It's sort of similar. It's not a completely different example. But what if you're the child of that relationship? You, you as a child, realize that your mother is cheating on your father. And he's a very good man. He's a very good dad. And your mom is unrepentant about it. She doesn't seem to care. Moreover, she slanders him behind your back and behind everyone else's back. Do you, child and dad, not have the right to be indignant? Of course you do. This is wrong. This is wrong. And that's, where, that's how Paul feels right now. I know God. He's a good father. And he's been good to you. And uh, we're not honoring him. And so he is offended. And uh, the interesting thing is, I, I find that we, we almost are never, almost any of us, offended for God's honor. We're just not. Uh, maybe some of you are. But often we're deeply, quickly offended over issues. Over issues. You're right, I'm right, wrong, quickly triggered, ah, get really angry quickly. Um, sometimes we're really easily offended by slights to our own competency, our own honor. But we're not often bothered or provoked by a desire to see God honored. Do we have a deep desire to see our good God known and honored? That's what Paul wants. He thinks God deserves it. He's a good, glorious God. And uh, the question is, what, what's Paul going to do about it? Well, he doesn't do what we would do. He doesn't take to Facebook and rant. Um, he doesn't complain to his friends. Instead, he engages. That's what he does. He engages. In verse 17, it says he reasons. He reasons with everyone in town that he can. The religious Jews in the synagogue, anyone passing by, the philosophical, philosophical elites of the Areopagus. And as he reasons, he'll do two things. He will encounter uh, barriers, and he'll build bridges. So first, the barriers. And there are more than just the two I'm going to talk about. But two sort of leap off the page, and they do so pretty quickly. And the first is uh, their religiosity. Um, Paul, in verse 22, commends them in a way that builds a bridge, but also is pointing out that they are very religious. And uh, if you think religiosity by nature is very good of its own, uh, it all depends on what you're worshiping. Um, and in verse 16, again, we, we've noticed that, that Paul, uh, Luke, indicates that the city is full of idols. That word full is very interesting. It's not the word full. It's actually the word under. It actually gives the picture of being submerged. Like the city is submerged under idols. And that's actually, that's actually what the, uh, some, a lot of ancient philosophers and historians noted. Uh, one Roman wrote... Uh, that it's easier to find a god in Athens than a man. That's how full of idols in temples the city is. Uh, it was just overflowing with uh, religiosity. And so, you know, it was a daily business to build a shrine and make a sacrifice and honor the deities. And uh, I, I can imagine the reason you would do this is that so long as you uh, keep every possible deity happy and content then you can be reasonably assured that they're okay with you. They're not going to smite you. They're not going to cross you. That uh, this is a fairly good 
reasonable way to maybe gather some security in life. We okay, gods? All of you gods? Are we okay? I've seek to, I'll sought to please you. And so here, they, they seem to be covering all their religious bases. And uh, they seem pretty confident they've done so. In verse 18, they hear Paul in this new strange teaching. And because they're curious, they uh, intellectually curious, they invite them in. But they don't seem particularly uh, repentant or concerned. They're missing something. They're, they're pretty confident they've, they've got their religious bases covered. But we also see uh, as a barrier their, their intellectual arrogance or certainty. Uh, you see that in verse 18. It's a very funny word. Uh, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers conversed with him and said, what does this babbler wish to say? Um, I don't know if Paul heard them or not. That word babbler is pretty interesting. It means uh, seed scatterer. It, it, it literally means a, a bird that travels around and picks up seeds and moves them around. They're saying, here's a guy that knows a little bit of something because he's been around. Picks up a piece here, picks up a piece there, picks up a piece there. He's like the homeless guy that seems to know a lot of things. He talked to a bunch of people. But has he really been trained? It's very dismissive and arrogant. Um, they, they are pretty confident. They know what they need to know. They know what matters. And uh, verse 21, they're pretty confident that they're on the cutting edge of everything new. And they don't seem uh, particularly uh, impressed by Paul. They're confident in what they know. Uh, and they are pretty confident they know more than others. And that brings us back to goodwill hunting. So this ponytailed know-it-all is arrogantly showing uh, Chucky to be an imposter when Will steps in, Jason Bourne, steps in and uh, finishes his sentence. And he says, you got that from Victus, works in Essex County, page 98. And then he asks, are you going to plagiarize the whole thing? Do you have any thoughts of your own on the matter? Is that your thing to do? To, to pawn off ideas as your own? To embarrass my friend and impress some girls? It, it's a beautiful, fun scene, actually. like seeing people get put in their place. And what's happening here is uh, the know-it-all who exposed Chuck gets exposed. And here, in the end, what happens is the super-confident know-it-alls who are religious and trust in their religion, uh, they are going to be exposed by Paul in verse 30 as being ignorant. He's going to say, you've gathered all this knowledge and you've carefully picked through it. And yet you've managed to be ignorant of the one thing that all this knowledge was for, which was to show you what the real God is truly like. You've missed the whole point. It's not that religion or intellect is bad. Certainly not. It's that anything can be abused and their religiosity and their intellectual certainty is actually serving as a barrier. This is a really important idea in reality, and it's this. It's that education anywhere is no immunity from idolatry. This is a general idea that like religion can't, or any kind of religion can't flourish in a really truly educational place, and that's not true. All kinds of religions true and false, can thrive in a place like this, especially idolatry. And idolatry is anything that's a substitute for God. So let me just explain for a second, and perhaps you already know this, that when you combine religiosity with, with the uh, idea of intellectual certainty, it has a beautiful allure. This beautiful, warm allure. 
this desirable, delicious seductiveness. The security of having checked off all your boxes, of being in control when you're not really in control, of, of the confident assurance that you're on top, that you're smart. Not only that you're smart, but you're smarter than other people. The security and the certainty of what you know, or at least what you think you know. The delicious idea of being on the inside and smarter than others who don't know. Man, there are people that pursue PhD degrees and higher education for their whole life just to have that feeling. That's an idol, friends. That's an idol. To, to know that I've checked off my boxes and I'm secure and I know more than others, that's the pursuit of a feeling. That's the pursuit of a religion, actually. And uh, so that means some of the greatest threats to your faith, if you're a Christian, isn't necessarily some God's not dead philosopher trying to debunk your faith in a philosophy class although that might be true. Um, but it can just as easily uh, be the seductive idols of success, of, uh, of certainty, of security, of being smarter than others that leads you to busyness and to pursuit of things that would carry you far from the Lord. And like all idols, all these things require of you is your devotion your time, your energy, your devotion, over and over, day after day, day after day, until you are far from the Lord. So Paul is uh, bothered by these idols, and uh, we've sort of seen the barriers here that he's encountering. And uh, lastly, what he does, I think this is pretty cool, is he builds bridges. Uh, he doesn't blow them up, leave town, doesn't point out, out he, he does point them out, but he's trying to, trying to build bridges. And uh, he identifies them and builds them and crosses them with those whom he disagrees. And I think in some ways he's teaching us how to engage those people that we don't agree with. It's pretty great. So first we see that he, uh, he does this respectfully. Uh, it's not really clear and commentators agree. We don't know what happened to Paul here when these folks said, hey, these are strange new ideas. And they sort of grabbed him and took him out of the Areopagus. Some people think he was under a formal trial. Some people thought, eh, maybe he's just being asked to explain some more. Whatever it is, he's being asked to defend the faith. And he defends the Christian faith, but he doesn't do it defensively. There's no defensiveness here. He's not out to defend himself. Instead, he's engaging them on their own turf with some of their own truths. And so uh, Paul recognizes some of the connections that already exist here. And there, there are points of connection between Christianity and what the Athenians practice and believe. First of all, he points out that they're religious. Well, I am too. And then he points out the altar of the unknown God. And then he points out their own poets and the truths that they share. And uh, that's, that's an important part. They, they sort of understand, at least their pagan poets did, that God is near and God is like a father. And there's an aspect in which the, the Bible is pretty clear about this. No matter where you go, no matter what culture you engage, there will be aspects of truths in that culture's expression. Um, which line up with the Bible, which uh, are, are serve as points of contact. Uh, there will also be places where uh, it will need to be challenged. And uh, that's just sort of the case everywhere. No one has a corner on God's truth, but uh, everyone has at least some testimony uh, in their culture of, of the way God is and what he's done. Uh, one point, interesting point of connection between the Athenians and us, I just want to mention this in passing, is... Uh, Paul makes, Luke makes mention of the Stoics and Epicureans, two rival philosophies of the day. 
inhabiting Athens. They've been around since 250 B.C. It's much later now. And uh, I would say that we are currently living in a wonderful moment where Stoicism, it's not really wonderful, but Stoicism and Epicureanism is again in, in contention here and now. This is Stoics and Epicureans part two or part 102. Uh, there are really no new ideas. We just keep going through the same things. But the Epicureans believe that God was distant and disinterested. They, didn't, they weren't atheists, but they just think God didn't care. And uh, the best thing you could do is just sort of find pleasure in the simple things of life. Man, that sounds like a ton of people I know. And uh, the Stoics believe that God was everywhere, all the time, everywhere, and everything. Sort of like a Buddhist idea. And the best you could do is live in harmony with how things really are, even if it involves suffering. Well, that sounds like an awful lot of people I know, too. And I think, actually, you put those together, and what you have is a pretty good idea and pretty good explanation for our current moment of despair. Hey, we live in a quiet age of despair. We do. Uh, if you don't believe me, I'll, I'll have a longer argument with you about it. But I, I really do think about 20 years ago, Dave Matthews Band put it together, put it together best uh, with, the, with the anthem of our age when they said basically, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That, I mean, that is the life motto for our entire culture. And uh, it is a far cry from what the scriptures actually say we should expect out of God in the world. So uh, what Paul does next is he reveals. He reveals to them ways in which they've reversed uh, how God actually works in the world. And I'm going to do this quickly. Uh, He tells them in verse 23, hey, look, you worship the unknown God. Let me tell you what he's like. I know that God. He says in verse 24, he's the creator. He created everything, all the things. He is not an artifact that you created and put in a temple. He is the creator. In verse 25, he is the sustainer. He's the one that gives to all life and breath. Every breath he gives. He sustains all things. In other words, he's not dependent on you delivering food to the temple for him. No, no. You're dependent on him every minute of the day. He's the sustainer. He's the ruler, verse 26. He governs all of human history. And he does it in such a way that the people in every place and time will reach out and seek him. And he does this as one who's a father. Verse 29, he creates his people, he creates us all, and he creates us in his likeness. We're like him. He created us like him in his image. Not the other way. He's not like what we create. Just because you created an idol and you think it's God, that isn't, he's not tied to that. No, he created us. We did not create him. He's our father. And in all these ways, they've taken the truth, which they sort of had, and they've reversed it. And Paul is saying, no, no, you've, you've, you sort of twisted it all around. And it's not just the Athenians that do that. All of us do it. We all do this. Um, instead of seeking God as he really is, the story of human history, all the way back from Genesis 3, is that we want to be God. We want to be in control. And so we take God as he's revealed, and we minimize him. Or we create substitutes for him. And we do this so that we can bring God under our control and try to get what we want out of him and out of life. That's what the Athenians do, and that's what we do. And uh, we sort of piece this together in what what I'm going to call a roof, a protective roof over our heads. And what Paul does next is he, he takes their roof and removes it. We believe if we can piece together enough 
functional deities, things that work for us, our success, our means of pleasure, our plans, and get them, we get all the plates spinning, get them all spinning at the right time, life, joy, peace, happiness, security will be ours. If we cross off enough boxes, maintain enough control. And uh, what Paul does in verse 30 is say, uh, look, you know a lot of things, but you've been willfully ignorant, and the time is up. The time's up. And uh, the security blanket you've constructed, very elaborate, very impressive, city full of idols, it's great. You know a lot of things. But your security blanket's got holes in it. Your roof has holes in it. He calls their bluff. He's like, you know about an unknown God? You have all these things revealed to you by nature, about the way God really is. Instead, you make idols and serve them. And we all do this to protect us and to protect our consciences because we don't want to really know God. We don't really want to serve God. We don't want to want to encounter the real God, and we want to believe we're in control. And here in a city, and at a college, you have perhaps at your disposal more, more tools for constructing a roof than any group of people in human history. You just do. Endless entertainment. Endless means of success. I mean, if you're after success and status, and that's one of your functional gods, well, you can get three degrees and you can do a B-field and you can keep going and getting more stuff. There's nothing wrong with doing those things. It's all about your motives. And if it's entertainment, then, well, you can be entertained every night of the week. And if it's escape, then do that. And if it's social life, well, I mean, you can do it all here. And uh, we, we can do this in lots of ways. And, oh, my gosh, we have this thing right here. It's a functional deity. I mean, I, I, even now, I can't get away from it. Um, it's probably not apropos to use this guy as an illustration, given his uh, recent charges. But Louis C.K., who I sort of feel bad quoting because of his sexual harassment charges, but he said something really um, profound a couple years ago. And uh, he, he was on Conan, uh, not Conan the Barbarian, the late-night redheaded guy. And he talked about how we use these things to escape reality. And he was, he was speaking very honestly, and it was really interesting. You can go find the clip because the... The audience is laughing with nervous laughter because they know he's onto them. And he's like, hey, everything, everything in your life, you know, underneath it all, there's that emptiness, that forever empty sadness. And uh, he goes on to say, that's, that's why we're willing to, like, text and drive and risk our life and ruin someone else's because we, we don't want to feel the sadness the encounter with reality for even a second. And so we reach to our phone and send all 50 texts and wait for a reply. Or whatever we need to do to make ourselves feel better, whether it's entertainment or food, we will do anything we can to push away the sadness. Or I would just say, hide ourselves under the roof of your constructed reality so you don't have to deal with things as they really are. But the way things really are is exactly the way God constructed it so you would seek Him. That's what He's saying. He put you here in this place, in this time, so you would seek him. And all the idols we construct, it's our way of hiding and running from him. And the good news here, last point, this is where Paul ends. The good news is, even though for all of human history, and the Athenians and us too, we're busy hiding, we're busy constructing roofs over our heads, we're busy running away, the good news is, God's not that far away. That's what he said. He's not that far from you. He's actually come in the person of Jesus. He's come all the way down. He's risen from the dead after he died a death for you. He's done all the work that needs to be done to bring you back to the Father. You don't 
have to go that far. All you have to do is, is be honest. Be honest about the roof. Be honest about the, the substitute gods, the, the roof you hide under to avoid him. And then turn to him. Turn to Jesus. Trust in him. And that's true whether you're a skeptic that might think, dude, you're dumb. Or um, a, a Christian, who, someone who came here as a Christian a year or two ago, and since then you've, you're like, yeah, I've been chasing all those substitute gods. Or someone who's thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm struggling to share uh, who I really am with people around me. I'm afraid they're going to find me. Whoever you are, the, the, the path to wholeness, to honesty, to being a whole human being, and to being the kind of person God wants you to be is the same. Be honest. Be honest about the way you're hiding and running. And turn to Jesus. He's not that far. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great kindness in uh, drawing near to us. Uh, If Paul's contention about the Athenians is true, and I believe it is, uh, well, it's true of all of human history, 